Revelation chapter 3, we'll look at verses 14 through 21 this morning. Uh, there's a few things that in this world that gross me out. Uh, I won't share all of them with you, but I will share one of them. And the thing that, one of the things that grosses me out the most is, is something that doesn't gross most people out. Um, but it is chewing gum. Like, I can't do it. I don't know how you all do it. I can't do it. I also can't be around people that obnoxiously chew gum. And so, like, if I'm in a line at a grocery store and there's, like, somebody behind me that's just, like, smacking and, like, letting it all hang out of their mouth, like, like Stephon Curry when he's at the free throw line with, his, like, his retainer thing, like, it's all hanging out. Like, I just don't, I can't do it. Like, I have to go to a different line. I start to feel nauseous. My poor kids, they can't, they can't chew gum in the car. Like, it's just bad. And so if I smell it, if I hear it, if I see it, like, it's just a thing for me. I just can't do it. And so, look, I'm just saying, if, if you want to torture Pastor Ben, you just chomp your gum while you're talking to me in the hallway. I'm going to look down and judge you in my mind. That's what I'm going to do, all right? Um, and I don't know where this came from. Like, my mom, when I was a kid, when I would act up in the car, like, she didn't, like, she, my mom's, like, the sweetest lady in the world. But one thing that she did to, like, get me to not act up in the car where she would start smacking her gum. I'm like, I was like literally start crying, mom, please stop, you know, you're, you know, and so maybe you psychology majors can tell me what, what's wrong with me as a result of that. But, and I can't, I don't even know where I base it out of. I think one time, I think it was in second grade, I actually saw a kid like take the gum off from underneath it and then put it in his mouth. And I think it just messed me up from that point on. I was just like grossed out by it. And so maybe you have something in your life where, man, if you think about it or if you see it and your stomach just turns. Uh, we talked about it even in small group, like a, a type of food that grosses you out. And somebody in our small group actually said lettuce grosses them out. They can't see it. They can't talk about it. Somebody said cucumbers. It was actually a married couple. Um, and so they have these things that they just can I, I actually heard one girl, and she just can't think about or smell or look at ketchup. It just grosses her out. And so maybe you have something like that. I feel like all of us in some way do. Um, but maybe you didn't know this, but the Lord actually has something that he says figuratively grosses him out. Something that he, figuratively speaking, cannot stomach. And that one thing is something called lukewarm Christianity. And we're going to see that in Revelation chapter 3 this morning. So far in Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3, we see God communicating seven letters to seven churches, preparing them for Jesus' return. Five out of the seven are not doing so well. Two out of the seven, obviously, uh, he serves as encouragement. But most of the weight of these letters have been sort of wake-up calls for all of these churches. But interestingly enough, God saves the most direct and really the most harsh letter to the very end. And this is to the church at Laodicea. The reason why God is so direct and straightforward with this church is because they are guilty of something he says is lukewarm Christianity. And so this morning, my goal is we would understand what lukewarm Christianity is so that we can try our best as a church through the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, try our best to avoid it. And so we'll start in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. And the angel of the Lord, uh, angel of the church in Laodicea, write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. That's about the Lord, clearly. It says, I know your works. You are neither hot nor 
uh, neither cold nor hot. What that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. This is not a compliment, right? This is a very interesting language that God uses to communicate to Laodicea about their spiritual condition. And the interesting thing about it is it actually culturally lined up with something that they were dealing with. So they would have known exactly what he meant when he uses the phrase lukewarm. Here's why. The city of Laodicea actually was not known for having good water sources. And so what they ended up having to do is they had to pipe in water sources from, from two neighboring communities. One community was a place called Hierapolis, which was known for hot springs that were used for medicinal purposes. And because Laodicea couldn't constantly travel back and forth to this place bringing buckets of water, they had to pipe in water from Hierapolis to Laodicea to get hot water. Not only that, but they couldn't get cold water in Laodicea either. Um, so they had to go from a, to a place called Colossae, and they would try to get cold water from colder springs from Colossae and pipe it in to Laodicea. So they had the two pipe systems coming from one place that had hot springs, one place that had water springs, coming to one location. But guess what would happen when, it would, when the water would arrive? It would become lukewarm. It was no longer cool, the temperature raised, to lukewarm. It was no longer hot, so the temperature diminished to being lukewarm. And so they would have been very familiar with being lukewarm. And none of us like things that are lukewarm. None of us like things that are, we want things either hot or cold. Most of the time, we don't want something in the middle. Let me give you an example. Chick-fil-A waffle fries. Those are incredible hot and salty. But if you ever let those things sit out and try to eat them later, they're just not that good. We want them hot and salty. They're the way that God wanted them to be made. How about soup? You, you can't have soup that's cold. You, you don't want to do it. What about cheap beer? This is what I've heard. You can't have cheap beer that's room temperature, right? I'm asking for a friend, right? Correct? You can't do it. So it's, it, there's things that are made that are supposed to be hot or cold. It's, or, not, not in between, not lukewarm. Laodicea lived in a sad state. They're always eating cold waffle fries and drinking hot Dr. Pepper. And most seriously, though, in the ancient world, they needed both hot and cold for medicinal purposes, and they couldn't receive it. And so it was even affecting their physical health. And so when God communicates to them that they are lukewarm, they didn't understand it because it was their physical reality. Every, or they understood it because it was their physical reality every single day. He's, God was using an illustration that was true about their physical reality to illuminate and expose their spiritual condition. And it's important that you recognize in this text that this is absolutely an analogy that God is using here. And it's important that we don't misunderstand it. What God is doing here is he's using an oxymoron. An oxymoron is really a figure of speech 
to really expose two things that are seemingly together but are contrary to one another. Let me, let me give you an example of an oxymoron. Somebody says, I like Duke and Carolina. That's an oxymoron. You can't do that. That's not true, okay? Here's an oxymoron. Somebody says, act naturally. You can't act naturally. You're just naturally or you're not. You can't act naturally. It's an oxymoron. Here's another one. Airline food. That's an oxymoron. (laughs) Government efficiency. That's an oxymoron, right? Microsoft works. That's an oxymoron. And there's all kinds of oxymorons. But make no mistake about it. The greatest oxymoron in the world is lukewarm Christianity. Lukewarm followers. Lukewarm disciples. You see, God is communicating that these things aren't supposed to go together. He's saying it doesn't work. So what does he do? He says it grosses him out. He spits them out of his mouth. The Greek word for spit is only used once in the Bible, and it's right here. It actually means to spit or to vomit or utter reject or supremely repulse. Now, here's what people often do with this text. They, they miss the analogy, and they read it like this. They say, okay, oh, so there's something called a lukewarm Christian. That's what people do. And so they say, okay, so there's a non-Christian, <clears throat> there's a Christian, and then there's another type of Christian called a lukewarm Christian. So they, they try to create three different types of people. And by doing so, you minimize the weight of this text and the sin in this text, and then by doing so, you minimize the punishment of what God actually says happens to lukewarm Christians. Throughout the seven letters, God is commending, even in the mess of all the seven letters, the six prior, rather, he commends the believers in the churches that are still remaining. And he's saying, hey, if you continue to remain, I'm going to bless you. You're going to have eternal life. Here, he's not commending them about anything. He has nothing to say about them. He's, he's very clear that he despises lukewarm Christianity. And so he says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. In other words, he's using this oxymoron not to describe another type of Christian. He's using this oxymoron, rather, to expose their unbelief. He's saying you're professing to know Christ, but because you're lukewarm, it's just unbelief. Think practically for how a Laodicean might have taken this. So they have hot water coming from one place. They have cold water coming from the other. What's the problem? The problem is that they're far from the source. They're not close to the source. The Laodiceans thought that they were okay, but God is communicating to them that they are not. And this is what he says in verse 17. He says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You see the problem here? The Laodiceans were oblivious to their spiritual condition. There's no self-awareness in their heart. These are people that are going to church and living in the city with no conviction of sin, no passion to share the gospel with others who don't know Christ. There's no sacrifice. There's no transparency in community. Everything is easy and convenient, and we just keep our comforts. And as long as we have our comforts, we are doing great. That's the condition of the Laodiceans, and God calls it lukewarm. It's not genuine. These are people that would be the worst 
in a small group. The best small groups, by the way, or small groups, by the way, are integrity. We have small groups. We gather on Sunday and we scatter throughout the week in small groups in people's homes. And, and we share life together. This is where we see discipleship happen in community. And so, but the worst times that we, the best times we have small group are just when, man, people are just sharing about things that God's doing in their life. Or maybe they're just sharing about a sin and struggle in their life, and they're just open about it. And they're just going, man, this would be praying for me. Or maybe they're just saying, God, man, we got to pray for my neighbor or my brother or my sister or my uncle or my grandfather who doesn't know Christ. I've been sharing the gospel with them. And so they, this, this transparency and this openness that happens, uh, th- those, are the, uh, those are the best times we have small group. But these kinds of people, the Laodiceans, were, were the ones that would make small group very difficult. Why? Well, they already have everything. They, their problems are already there. They don't have any problems. Everything's like, praise the Lord, everything's going great. Any prayer requests at all? Yeah, well, our cat, you know, she, we switched food. She's not eating as well, so just pray for her, right? But I'm doing fine. Let's pray for my cat. Or the person, they're just like, I, I have an unspoken request. Like that one, Right? By the way, if you say that you have an unspoken request, you better tell everybody what it is because everyone is going to automatically assume the worst. They got an unspoken request. I think they're the people that robbed the, you know, the convenience store, right? They just assume the worst. And so this is the Laodiceans. They're just kind of these people that, man, they are just shallow and empty. They're not hot nor cold. They're lukewarm. There's nothing to it. You say, well, Ben, that sounds really harsh. Well, look at the language that God uses about them. He says, you're wretched, you're pitiable, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. In other words, he says, you appear to be neutral, but you are actually dead. You're professing to be a believer, but there's nothing to your life that shows evidence of that. And sadly, this is what we often see in Christian culture. There's many that believe that we can have a somewhat of a neutral response to Christ. There's a view of Christianity that says, okay, well, you can become saved, but uh, there's saved people and there's lost people, but there's this middle person that's sort of in between. The middle person says they're believers, but they don't act like it. The middle person has eternal life, but they miss out on the abundant life here on earth. Or the middle person is going to heaven, even though they live like hell. And sometimes this teaching, I've even heard people say, like, okay, if you're in the middle Maybe that's because you've made Jesus your Savior, but not your Lord yet. Let me just pose to you that there is no separation in Scripture. When Jesus is your Savior, he's your Lord. If he is not your Lord, he was never your Savior to begin with. When he becomes your Savior, he becomes your master, he becomes your God, and you want to worship him, you want to honor him, you want to glorify him. Here's what you see even throughout Scripture. Genuine salvation always leads to life change. Look at the believers in the New Testament. None of them are perfect, but you don't see a neutral response to Jesus. Think about Paul. When Paul, when he's he's faced with uh, God on the road to Damascus, you think he was like, okay, oh, there's there's Jesus. I'm falling to my knees now. I'm crying out. Oh, he wants me to be baptized? I don't know. I have to check my calendar. He wants me to go share the gospel with people? I don't know. I'm not really ready for that. We'll see if that fits. We've got March Madness coming up. I don't know, God. No, he has no neutral response. What, what, is, what does uh, Paul give Jesus? He's all in. What do you see Peter after he sees the risen Lord? Now, is he perfect? No. 
But he's all in with the mission of the gospel. He's transformed. He's a new person. So much so that when the Sanhedrin, the religious elite, saw him, they said, man, I don't understand. This guy is, he's uneducated, untrained, but man, he's clearly been with Jesus. He's not the same person. How about Old Testament? You think about Isaiah. When Isaiah saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted, what does he say? He says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live with people with unclean lips. He goes, listen, here I am. Send me. Do whatever you want with my life. See that? There's no neutral response in Scripture. There's no neutral response with Christianity. It doesn't exist. But somehow in our culture, specifically in the South, I mean, we see it all the time. Everyone thinks that you can have this middle ground, that you're okay with being lukewarm. You're okay with being carnal. That doesn't exist, friends. It's not a biblical reality. What did we just read? The same author that wrote the book of Revelation, that's seeing these things revealed to him by the Lord, and he's sharing them with the seven churches. What did Philip just read right before we preached? He said, look, In Christ, there is no darkness. If someone walks in the darkness, they are not in the light. He doesn't say, hey, there's such a thing as a dim room in between. He's like, it's light and darkness. It's two things separate. There's no in between. Scripture doesn't allow another type of person. And the problem with this view is that it causes one to believe that Jesus has the power to save you from the sting of death and the penalty of hell, but he doesn't have the power to sanctify you and grow you in the gospel. So what you end up having is this view of God like he invited you to the dance. And once you got to the dance, he just sat on the wall and he's just hoping that you, you know, get me back in the dance. He's sort of, I'm out of control. I don't have control to really be in your life. So I'm just going to hope that you figure it all out. No, 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 that's not, the, that's not the gospel. He doesn't take a nap on you once you get saved. The Holy Spirit doesn't just rest on you after you're saved. The Holy Spirit continues to, as Paul says in Ephesians, or Philippians chapter 1, as he begins to finish the work that he started in you. So friends, I want to plead with you this morning because I love you. If you are okay with a neutral response to the gospel, you probably don't get the gospel. If you're sitting here this morning and you're going, okay, I'm, I'm okay with the faith, my faith the way that it is now. I'm okay not fighting sin. I'm okay not sharing the gospel. I'm okay not walking in repentance. I'm okay with being lukewarm. If that's you, friends, let me just tell you this again. I love you. If that is you, you don't know the Lord. And I can say that because Scripture doesn't give anyone with that type of posture any confidence that they know the Lord. So what does God do? In his abundant grace, he communicates to the church of Laodicea a picture of someone who knows the Lord. And he says this is what their life looks like. And there's four things I want to pull out at verses 18 through 19. They're going to show a picture of someone who's really, truly a believer in Christ. Verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. 
So be zealous and repent. So if you're sitting here this morning, you're, okay, you're challenged. Okay, gosh, man, am I really a believer? What are, how do I know if I'm a believer? There's four things that he lists here that God describes of what a believer should look like. The first one he says is, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. Now, what he's saying here, it seems complex, but it's really a simple message. Basically speaking, the, the, basically the, the Laodiceans found their comfort in earthly wealth. And he's telling them, buy my gold refined in fire. In other words, he's saying, don't find your treasure here. Find it in me. Another way to say that is, he's communicating, is this means a true believer is going to value what God values. Are you tracking with that? A true believer is going to seek the things of Christ. You ever seen someone when they first come to know Christ and they're just excited because they just want to know more about who God is. They would say, man, you didn't have to teach them to go to church. You didn't have to teach them to read the Bible. You didn't have to teach them to share the gospel. They just started wanting to do it. Why? Because they start to value the things that God values. I remember this one guy, um, when we were going through the book of 1 John a few years ago, he became a believer right around the same time we were going through 1 John. And he started going to a small group. And as he's there in the small group, man, uh, our small group leader is going through 1 John chapter 1. And the guy, he's just sitting there, man. He's just listening to everything he's saying. He's just all excited. He's got his Bible open. And every time he's listening to the, the small group leader talk, he looks down. He's like trying to figure out how it's relating to, you know, First John 1. And so he comes up to the small group leader at the very end. He goes, man, I don't, I love the, the, the small group tonight. I learned so much, but I, I think I've got the wrong Bible. He's like, Why do you have, what do you mean? He goes, well, show me where you're at. He goes, so he showed him John 1. And he sat there the whole time in John 1, and he's doing 1 John 1. And he's like, oh, so there's other Johns? There's like a first, sec- okay, wait a minute. So there's a gospel, and then there's like a, so he had to figure it all out. And he goes, man, listen, I don't know any of this stuff, but I'm excited to be here. And like, he just wanted to know more. And so what did he say? I mean, I, will you disciple me? Will you walk through this with me? And so he did. Why did he want to do that? Why was he okay with that? Because, man, he began to care about what God cares about. He began to value what, what God values. That is what a believer will do. If you're a believer, Christ is the one who you treasure. You're going to care about knowing him more. You're going to be, you want to care about growing in your faith. This is why Jesus, when he talks to his disciples in Matthew 6, he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be what? Added to you. And so if you're a believer, you'll value what? The Savior values. Second thing is, he says, he'll cover them in white garments. He says, so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Now, in the past several weeks as we've gone through this, we talked about white garments. He's going to cover you with white garments. What does that mean? We said it's his righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ. In other words, no longer does God look at us as sinners. He looks at us as as one that is righteous, that one that is not guilty of sin. So what happens when we become believers is he covers us in his righteousness, which means we have a new heart, which means we have new desires, which means we love the things that God loves and we hate the things that God hates, namely sin. 
I love Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, I think Paul sums it up really clearly. He says, verse 3, he says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, uh, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This is who you were before Christ, friends. He says, but when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified, which means made right by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Passages like this flood the New Testament. He's saying, this is how you were before Christ. This is who you are in Christ. And this is your new identity. This is the changed life. All over the New Testament, we see this. And I meet people all the time, and I think it's important for you to understand the weight of these kind of passages, because I hear people, when, when uh, they talk about their salvation, they go, man, I, I'm not really sure when I became a believer. I'm just really struggling with it. So I know, like, I, I became a believer, like, I, I know I prayed a prayer when I was, like, five or six. And then, like, but later on in life, like, I really started to get a passion for Christ. Like, I really started to want to read the Word. Like, I really started to care about people around me and how to serve them and how to, how to know uh, their needs and how to, how to share the gospel with them. I really started to care about being in community with other believers. I didn't have that before. I really started to care about missions and, and sharing the gospel in my city and, like, all these things. They begin to care about those things. And so, man, like, uh, they ask me, so when, when do you think I became a believer? I'm like, when was your life changed? It's as simple as that. When was your life changed? I understand, like, when you, you have a... Uh, confession of faith and you're seven or eight or nine years old, it doesn't mean that you're going to be a pastor overnight, right? You're not going to be like passionate about missions at nine years old. But listen, there is going to show a life change if you're early in Christ. So when was your life changed? If you want to know if you're a Christian, just ask the simple question, how has my life changed? How am I different? How has my desires and my passions changed? How has my priorities changed? How do I position my life around the gospel? So that's the second thing. The first one, we value what the Savior values. The second one, we have a changed life. The third one, he says, he will anoint their eyes so that they may see. This goes without saying, they'll be given new eyes. 1 Corinthians 2, we won't go there because of time, but he, Paul talks about how we'll have the mind of Christ. And here's what this basically means. You'll believe him. You'll believe what he says. Now, I don't know if you've read scripture, but if you start like in the Old Testament, there's some bizarre things in there. And if you're a believer, you're saying you believe them. That's what a believer does, right? They believe God. And you're saying, I believe. So like, let's just start with creation. The whole world existed. How? God spoke it into existence. You believe that? You believe that? Good. That's, that's really encouraging. Um, thank you, guys. Okay, then you read later on Moses. 
He's chased by Pharaoh and his army, and he comes across the Red Sea. And what does he do? He commands the Red Sea to open, and it opens. And somehow the ground is dry enough for them to walk across. And then somehow as they go across it, Pharaoh and his army try to follow him, and God closes it back. You believe that. You believe that in um, later on in Genesis, you see this place, Sodom and Gomorrah, and you see Lot and his wife leave. And then he tells Lot's wife, don't look back. And then because she looks back, she turns to salt. We believe that. We believe that in Jonah, we see Jonah, he's in the belly of a fish for three days and he doesn't die and he's not swallowed whole. And he comes out again, alive and renewed. And we believe that. We believe that Joshua looked at the sun and commanded it to stand still and it did. Okay, that's Old Testament. And I could go on and on. We believe that, you know, Samson killed a thousand Philistines with the donkey's jawbone. You believe that, okay, not even, that's just Old Testament stuff. But like, let's just talk about Jesus for a second. Let's talk about Jesus more than a second. But let's just talk about Jesus for, in this segment, okay? He was born of a virgin. You believe that. You believe that Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life, even as a teenager, teenage boy. Never had a bad thought. He had siblings and never sinned. He lived to be in his 30s, never sinned. And then he died on the cross. And when he died on the cross, you believe, if you're a believer, that he absorbed the wrath of God. And then not only that, as he absorbed the wrath of God, he went to the grave And then you also believe, you're a believer, that he rose from the grave three days later. And now you also believe that the same Jesus who was born in this obscure town and only lived 30 plus years is now seated at the right hand of the Father and that you're going to see him one day. And you live based on the truth that one day you're going to see Christ and all those who are dead in Christ have risen again and you're going to be all together as a family in heaven. You believe that. Why do you believe that? Because you have the mind of Christ. Because he's taken your eyes and anointed them so that you would see. And man, I, I struggle with people like, look, I'm, I'm all for apologetics and like talking about and trying to make faith sound reasonable, but you can only go so far. At some point, this thing ain't that reasonable. It's just not I can't scientifically say, okay, here's all the reasonable reasons. Like, like, look, I can go over like, all the things about, okay, the Bible is written in you know, 40 different authors and three different continents and three different languages and 1,500-year you know, span of time. And it's got, we've got the originals. You know, we've got the originals more than any other ancient literature. I can do all that all day. But, man, as we get into the scriptures, there's just some crazy stuff in there that it really takes faith to believe. And the only way you're going to have those, that faith to believe is God gives you eyes to believe it. And man, even over time, you're going to read scripture and go, man, I'm not saying you should never wrestle with it. I think you should wrestle with it. If you just read scripture and just believe everything immediately, there's probably something that you're not thinking about. But at some point, you're reading it and you're going, man, I don't know. But over time, man, your faith grows and you become more of a believer. That is what he does with you. He gives you values that he values. He gives you a transformed life and he gives you new eyes to see. He makes you and causes you to believe. And the last and final thing, he says in verse 19, those I love, I reprove and discipline. 
So be zealous and repent, which means this. He loves you so much, he loves you like a father, and he doesn't allow sin to destroy you. So he reproves you and causes you to repent. He doesn't allow you to stay in your sin. If you stay in your sin, God's wrath is upon you, and he loves you too much to allow you to stay in it. So these are four things. You value what he values. You have a transformed life. You have the mind of Christ, and he doesn't keep you in your sin. That's a believer, friends. That's what a believer looks like. So if you're wondering, man, if I'm a believer, do you value what he values? Do you care about scripture? Do you care to know him more? Do, do you have a changed life? Are you, are you once someone who was dead in your sins, but now you're alive in Christ? Do you fight sin? Do you hate sin? Do you have the mind of Christ? Is your faith growing? Are, are you wanting to believe him more? Four, lastly, are you hiding your sin? If you're hiding your sin and if you're not repenting and walking in sin, Scripture, again, gives you no confidence that you really know the gospel. And so here's the invitation to the church of Laodicea, and it's the same invitation for us this morning. He's telling them if they were truly believers, these four things would be flowing out of their life. They would show that they value the things that God values. They would show a changed life. They would show that they are believers. They have the mind of Christ. They would show that they don't want to stay in sin. And look, I know that this is heavy stuff to work through. I mean, I, know, I mean, if you're going over this list and you're challenged to like examine your heart, it can be very sobering and even seemingly condemning. But let me tell you this. This is not a condemning message from the Lord at all. It is quite the opposite, in fact. Because more than anything, God is making them aware of their spiritual condition so that they would realize their spiritual poverty, their spiritual blindness, their spiritual nakedness, and their sin. And more than anything, God is calling them into a relationship with him. And this is why I love so much about how these seven letters to these seven churches end specifically with the church at Laodicea. Verse 20, he says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So listen, friends, even though God is against lukewarm Christianity, there is still hope. If you look at these four things and you realize that, uh, that you are, in fact, lukewarm, that you, in fact, don't believe, God is still calling you to fellowship with him. I love the language here. He says, he will dine with you. In that culture, in Jewish culture, that meant something. It meant if, if you were a Jew in someone's life that you didn't agree with or you didn't align with or someone had a bad reputation and you didn't want to be seen with them, you did not eat with them. And by eating and in dining at the table with someone, you were affirming their life. You were saying, this person and I are together. We're close. We're friends. And God is saying, listen, if you 
repent of your lukewarm Christianity or your lukewarm lifestyle. He's saying, and you knock and you invite me in, you, I will dine with you and you will be called my friend. And why is that? Because Jesus was the one who paid the price for you to come and sit at that table. It's not because of something that you did or you didn't do. It's what Christ did in your place. The reason why God can look at you and approve of you and and approve of me is not because of what we did or didn't do. It's rather what Jesus did. Jesus paid the price so that God would hold nothing against us by absorbing the wrath of God and dying in our place. And now we can sit at his table. And as we sit at his table, yes, he takes us as we are, but he does not keep us there. And that's the good news of the gospel. And not only that, but he grants us the right to sit with him on his throne. I don't know precisely what that means. Maybe you have some commentary for me later on on this. But the details are not clear. What is clear, though, is that we will be with Christ for eternity and will have eternal life. That's what he does with the non-believer. He says, invite me in. If you invite me in, you have a changed life. You will value what I value. You will believe what I say. And you will hate sin. Here's what I love about all of these seven letters. The seven letters are to prepare seven churches for the coming of Christ. And this is why every single letter ends with this one phrase. He who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches, which means the same warnings and the same encouragements that were meant for all seven of these churches are meant for us today. And so they will always remain true until Jesus Christ returns. And so as we, a church, await Jesus' return, may we not have a neutral response to the gospel. May we not embarrass the gospel by our casual, lukewarm response. And perhaps if we are falling into a lukewarm pattern, may we ask the question, do I really understand the gospel? And if you don't understand the gospel, I want you to see the beauty of this text, that you can knock and he will will respond, that you can ask and you will receive that you can confess your sins and you can see that he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And so it's my hope that we would be poor in spirit, continually growing, continually striving to know the Lord. And when Christ does return, may we not be found lukewarm, but may we be found sitting at the table and dining with our Lord. That's our hope this morning. God help us. Let's pray. Jesus.